Welcome to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez. I'm a journalist, an author, and importantly for this story, a cancer survivor. Well, a cancer survivor so far. In this episode of the program, a calm and furious patient. You've got cancer. Where is it? What is it? What am I going to do now? And am I dying? Your life has just changed, and the end of your life may be a lot sooner than you had been counting on. Episode 3, A Calm and Furious Patient I was 61 years old, and I had never been an inpatient in a hospital before. Up till now, I had been a resilient, sturdy specimen. I always needed very little recovery time. For decades, I knew I could abuse my body when I needed to and bounce back pretty quickly. You're listening to The Things I Thought About While My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez. Here was the inventory. I had, over the years, fractured my wrist, twice, busted some ribs, twice, been concussed, cut and burned in minor accidents, but inside, all through those years, everything worked, and nothing hurt. It was part of my idea about myself that I was that kind of person. But now, a couple of million cells in my guts were reproducing copies of themselves willy-nilly and for no particular reason. And if I didn't do anything about it, I would die. These cell clusters, these tumors, were bleeding nonstop, and my body couldn't make enough new red blood cells to keep up with the constant loss. I had severe anemia, so along with the tumors, I was wrung out, less able to sleep, less able to work, less able to recover. And now, none of these conditions, none of them, would improve without serious responses. I had bags of iron infused into my veins to kick my red blood cell production into higher gear. I finally had a prescription for a sleep aid that would allow me to move to six and seven hours a night from two and three. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast, I was calm. I concluded that I wasn't afraid to die, if that's how this thing was going to end up, but I didn't want to die. Outwardly, I was placid, accepting, resigned to my fate. Inwardly, I was completely unreconciled to the loss of control over my life, ferociously angry that I was pinned to the universe's dartboard, and very well aware that I could do everything the doctors ordered. I could do everything they asked me to do, and I could die anyway. In fact, down the road, following their orders might mean more suffering, trying more things out, and still dying right on schedule. The date not changed one bit. That's how my mother, the fatalist, died, of cancer, little more than 90 days from diagnosis to her funeral, her body a house of fire, resisting every treatment, and then, pfft, like that, gone. I knew that was a possibility. The next step was to get a second opinion. I headed up to New York. I met a recommended surgeon who looked at the snapshots of my insides and agreed with what the Philadelphia doctors said. He asked if I had already scheduled the next screening, which would check for spread or tumors elsewhere in my body. I mentioned that test would be in another week or so back in Philly. He asked, want to do it right now? 
Let me check whether we can do that right now. I was handed an enormous jug of fluid, a gallon with dye, and given a specific time interval in which to drink it all. Yuck. Every last ounce. Bad to the last drop. Then a line was poked into my arm and more dye dripped in that way. I was rolled into radiology, laid on a table, and told to hold still for the spinning and scanning and whirring to begin. But there was good news for a change. The scan showed no evidence of spread from my colon. Taken together with the lack of a specific protein in my blood, the scan showed no other detectable active tumors elsewhere in my body. How bad were the tumors we all knew I had? Well, that was impossible to say until they were out. Maybe you've been at a doctor's appointment and you've been led into a room, told to sit on the examining table and wait for the doctor. And while you wait, you scan the room. There's this inoffensive art, a kind of art from nowhere, posters from drug companies, a red sharps box for needles and the like, and visual aids from medical supply companies. Well, this time, the surgeon actually used one of the visual aids. It was a luridly colored map of the lower intestinal tract, pinks, reds, yellows. I was taken on a quick tour of myself. Your colon is a roughly triangular affair, an ascending colon on the right side of your trunk, a transverse colon that crosses to the other side of your abdomen, then a descending colon that leads to the rectum and out to the exits. My tumors were not that far from each other, one in the ascending colon and one just around the first bend in the transverse. The surgeon said, basically, we're going to take this whole section out, along with the attached appendix, pull down the transverse colon and connect it to where the now-removed ascending colon used to be, and voila, done, like plumbing or auto mechanics. I would move from getting through the day with the equipment I was issued in the womb, a complete colon, and move to having, let's say, a semicolon, for good. There was room in the surgical schedule. Here's your date. I would arrive in New York more than a day before required to check into the operating room and drink prep, that liquid that would clear out my guts and give the surgeon a nice, empty digestive tract to work in. There was one good thing about tumors in one place, close together, showing no signs of metastasis. The surgical team wouldn't have to do extensive, full-on abdominal surgery, with a large incision, interference with viscera and muscles and other organs. Nope. I would have one short vertical incision heading down my lower abdomen from my navel, and a few other small incisions scattered around my belly, openings the surgical team would use to slip in lights, cameras, air, water. There's less pain, there's lower risk of infection, a shorter hospital stay, and, I was glad to hear, much, much shorter healing and recovery. I would check into the OR really early on a Saturday morning and, if all went well, walk back out the door before lunchtime on Monday. Easy, right? Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. 
Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. nearby hospital operates a large hotel in Manhattan for family members and for people arriving in New York in advance of a hospital visit. My wife and I checked into our basic room, which included a kitchen, the Thursday night before surgery. We'd been married 38 years. We'd been a couple 43 years. This long, long history did something really unusual. The strangeness of the situation didn't enter into it, just the task at hand. We walked to a nearby grocery store and stocked up cereal and coffee for breakfast the next morning, lemon ices, the only food I'd be able to eat later the next day, white grape juice, clear apple juice, jello, all matter of fact. We did our quiet, delicate dance around each other. I was in trouble. We might have been a little scared, but there wasn't that much to say about it. It was just the latest wrinkle in a very long life together. Just another thing to be gotten through. I was surrendering. I would have to allow myself to be taken care of. I would have to let things take their course. Furious and calm, I concluded I had no choice. I had no choice. No decisions to make, no this but not that. I didn't stray very far from my room the next day as I chugged massive amounts of water, juice, and the liquid meant to completely and noisily clean me out. I read, watched bad TV, went to the bathroom, a lot, watched some more bad TV, and listened to my stomach rumble and lurch and gurgle. I'd be allowed one more shower Friday night, and wash my torso with a special soap meant to clean my skin in preparation for surgery. The next morning, my wife wanted to take a cab the few short blocks to the hospital. Finally, here was a choice that I could make. No cab. We'd leave in time to walk the empty avenue on the cool, damp east side of Manhattan to the front door of the cancer center and pass through that door into a different world the world of really sick people. Unsteady gates, quiet, uncertain voices, people slumped in waiting room chairs. I knew I didn't look like these people, did I? I didn't sound like these people. Just a few days before, I was in San Francisco, in a swell suit and tie, speaking to an audience of about a thousand people about the American debates over climate change. Now I was in sweatpants and a loose-fitting shirt, waiting to take an elevator to cross another threshold from my old life into a new one and into whatever that held. Parts of me would be removed so that they wouldn't kill me, but I was warned. 
those parts could be examined and analyzed and photographed and sliced and dyed and put onto slides to figure out just how much trouble I was in, something, amazingly, at this late date, we still didn't know. They called my name, took my paperwork, and sent me upstairs. Thanks for listening to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. Of course, we're still right at the beginning. There's a lot that has yet to happen, physically and emotionally. These aren't things I would have chosen to happen to me, but they are the things that happened as they do to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Maybe even you, or someone you care about. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and pass it on to others facing the same challenges. To somebody it might help, not only to find out how it goes, but maybe to compare notes or listen for insights that can comfort or reassure. In the next episode, Getting Alterations, I head to the hospital to get opened up. Everything's new. Sure, I had been in plenty of hospitals, but never as the patient. Join me for the next installment. My body was trying to kill me, and I was trying to make it stop. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider writing a review or sharing with a friend. This is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks go to producer and audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. <laughs>